0: One of the advice I can give any principal is the best time to sell is while the practice is still performing, not when it's just lost 20% of its revenue because you lost the the five biggest clients because they're concerned about how much longer you're going to do this for. And certainly the time to sell is while you're still enjoying it. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for
1: Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 219 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you do decide to save your accounting practice, what should you do or not do? This is the question I ask Matthew Taylor, a business broker of accounting practices. Easy mistakes when buying or selling.
0: I suppose... Understanding what you're selling. So, typically, if we're talking smaller accounting firms, it's the net of GST. So, sometimes people will say, What are your fees? And they'll say, 500,000. But you need to be quoting the net of GST because if someone's paying a multiple, if they're paying one times, they don't want to be paying one times the tax rate. So, it's net. Even though often the sale is done as a going concern and there may be no GST, you know, the purchase price isn't subject to GST. The actual purchase price will be based on the net, your net fee, net of GST fees. The ownership structure is an important one too. So, some people need to go back because <laughs> it was some time ago and look at who actually owns the business and get this information up front to understand uh, whether there be CGT implications or there's small business taxation concessions. The lease is another one. They probably need to double-check where they are with their lease. It can actually be a bit of a hindrance for the bank. So if you've got a purchaser that's going to move into the practice location, then they're going to want some certainty around the lease period.
1: Actually, can I talk to you about the building? A lot of practitioners own the building they operate out of, but they have the building sitting in an SMSF. Is it that in most cases the building doesn't go with the practice? So there's just a lease from the SMSF to the business and the new purchaser will take over the lease, but the building stays in the SMSF? Or do you often see the building coming out of the SMSF and going with the practice?
0: Well, firstly, hats off to accountants that have actually purchased where they're operating out of. Like it, it just makes such a good strategy for themselves and no doubt their clients who have done similar things because rent to yourself right and sometimes I'll, I'll meet accountants how long have you been here 30 years do you own the premises no and you're looking at where the the piece of real estate is and you're thinking can you imagine how much this would have been 30 years ago but I understand that at the time when people set up practices they don't know how big they're going to get and there's lots of reasons why people don't buy the real estate I would say in most circumstances the purchasing party if they're coming into the practice probably not always in a financial position to be able to buy the building as well. But that's okay. You can lock up a nice lease, right? So now you've got a new tenant.
1: So most practices are on the market without the building attached.
0: Yeah, in most circumstances. Because
1: yeah. you just get a lot more bias if you don't attach the building. That's right. Because for a million dollars, you have a lot more bias than for $3 million if you put the $2 million, $2 million
0: building right, yeah. into it. So it, it's usually availability of capital. A lot of them will like, if they are going to move into the premises, like a condition of a lease that they've got a buyer of last resort or... First refusal, I think the terminology might be, so that if it does go on the market that they'll have the opportunity to buy it.
1: The purchaser probably wants to see a, a good solid lease attached to the business so he can't get kicked out of the building. Also, so the bank.
0: The strange thing is is often the location isn't particularly vital because it's an office and as long as they're moving close proximity, it probably doesn't matter too much. But the banks in their credit wisdom still like to attach the same business premises to a lease because they'll say, well, what's going to happen to the practice if the landlord kicks them out next week kind of thing.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. So, in practical terms, it's actually not so important how long the lease has left, et cetera. But the banks really want to see a good, solid, long that's lease. That's right. Yeah. And what do the banks want to see? One year, two year, five year, 10 years? Oh, year yeah. Releases? They'd like
0: to, in an ideal world, 10 years. So, but that might be made up of options, you know, three by three by three, a nine year lease, or six years. You know, usually once there's at least another, you know, four to six years left on a lease, that's usually acceptable. But you probably find if, you know, I just did a, a recent transaction where, they are taking over the premises. The landlord and the agent were falling over themselves to draw up a new lease term. Like it's it's usually not a problem, but it's, it's just something that needs to be, in terms of mistakes, it's, it's something that people don't get up front.
1: But then that's also another topic because, of course, the lease from the SMSF to the practice might officially have been at market value but could have been ramped up. A little bit. Probably, you know, very often the lease terms between the SMSF and the practice is slightly above market value to get more money into the SMSF and still comply with at arm's length requirement. (laughs) So if you then take over the lease, you are very likely to pay above market value lease rates.
0: Yeah, but most people moving into the practice are okay about that. Typically I've had to do quite a few rental appraisals and either... It usually goes two ways. If you look at the profit and loss of an accounting firm, they're either paying double what the rent should be because they're maximising contributions in the super or it's about half what it should be (laughs) because they're doing the opposite. They're they're utilising their capital elsewhere and taking advantage of, even though the law does say that it should be at market, there are quite a few that are floating around that under market, but that's okay. I understand what the strategy at the end of the day. A lot of these accountants bought their location because it secured the business in that location and provided some future capital growth. So again, like I said, any accountant who have done that in most of the capital season in the last decade, it's been a good decision.
1: But so the buyer really needs to do an appraisal of the lease contract because the current lease might not be at might not be really at arm's length, although officially it needs to be at arm's length under the well, SIS Act. But well, yes, but it will to. go
0: for going forward. It will because yes. the owner is going to be looking for that. Actually, one of the things that when they don't take the business, I've seen, which is a little bit of a curly one, is is the purchaser will actually put a condition on the purchase that when the property is released, it's not released to an accountant because they don't want the same type of business going in there. Because in case people. Obviously, clients pull up and they say, oh, while we're here, (laughs) we'll just get it done here. So sometimes they don't allow them to release the property to another accountant.
1: You mentioned before that accountants put a lot of value on the brand, but the value is really in the clients. You didn't mention the staff. Is there value in the staff?
0: Increasingly, yes. Yes. Because what I'm finding is more and more, I wouldn't say the main reason, but more and more one of the reasons for firms looking to get bigger is to retain talent. So by becoming a larger practice, there's more opportunities for growth and dealing with more complex files and providing a career path for the staff members. So that's the first part of it. So it's hard to attract if you're a smaller firm, it's actually quite can be quite difficult to attract good accountants because the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. So there's always that attraction to, to look larger firms. So mm-hmm. if this firm is on the growth and your salary is on the growth and the types of files and exposure you're getting and getting to see more clients, you're more likely many people, if they're on that part of their career, are likely to stay. The other thing too is if the staff member knows the files well, then sometimes in many cases the staff become more important than the principal because if the principal's more been a sounding board to the business owners that he services the clients but isn't actually doing any of the actual real hands-on work on the tools then those staff members become can become quite vital Hmm. and i think in most circumstances if if they're a client which has got even had relationships with some of the clients and talk regularly is the first go-to person because now they're doing single touch payroll for the firm or they're doing different mm-hmm. type of, um, you know, that they deal with the quarterly bass and they're the first go-to person rather than the principal. It becomes an intrinsic part of the purchase to retain those staff. So yes, there's definitely value in the staff, especially if the staff are well-qualified and the principal gives them a good rap and their salary is below right market.
1: I can see all the reasons why staff would be a great asset, especially if they own a good relationship with the client, etc. But I can also imagine that they can become a time bomb if they move into the new premises, into the new practice, and they have been doing things their way for 30, 40 years, and now there's somebody who bought it all and now he's meant to do it this way but he's been doing it all this peter let him do it all this all these years another way i can imagine it can also be a time bomb let me give two examples there's tim and he's really he's young 25 has been with the practice for 5 years motivated has great relationships with the clients fast efficient etc and then there is let me let's call him george george has been there for 45 years old is very set in his ways, likes to sit in his chair and kind of just mumble to himself. I can imagine George is a lot more difficult to transition to a new practice than Tim. And then also he becomes, you know, it's not easy to fire people once you take on this staff. If you don't look very close on onto who you hire, it is very difficult to let them go, and they might poison the environment until you finally manage to let them go.
0: I think as a purchaser of an accounting firm, they're very lucky that they're dealing in an industry where people are just so ethical and honest all the time. And what I've found when there's been discussions about staff, the principals have been really good. They've been really open. They're like, yep, he's great and she's fantastic and make clear messages of who needs to come and maybe a little bit take it or leave it with another staff or two, and this is in the case where a much larger firm, and the larger firms are very interested in the staff. They seem to seek out a lot more information around the staff than maybe a smaller firm who's going to move in or or a sole operator because he just accepts he needs to keep all the staff when he first starts.
1: What's the legal situation with the staff? If the purchaser doesn't want to have, doesn't want to take over, George, is there a legal obligation to take?
0: Well, it's a sale of business, so... No. Of course, all the, you know, allowances for long service leave and holidays and everything would have to be paid out. And typically, while I'm not an employment lawyer, and I'm sure there's slightly different laws in each state, but usually they'll, if there's some long-term staff, there's an adjust, there's either, they're either paid out. Occasionally, staff member might be building up a bit of leave and they plan to go to Europe and they're pretty comfortable with with what's going on they can actually they've got the right to retain their holidays and then what will happen there'll be an adjustment at 70 cents in the dollar for the provisioning for the holiday leave that they're keeping because they're planning to go overseas after on a honeymoon or something so but this is why some of the larger firms are so curious about the staff because they know that this is their this is their time to make that decision in saying that when you do have those staff members I actually see some principals that are put off selling because they're so attached to the staff. They know the staff are going to struggle in a new environment, so they almost soldier on <laughs> to keep the staff employed, which is very commendable, very commendable that they love their staff like that. But that's the type of people accountants are.
1: In your experience, what average percentage of staff goes across? Is it usually 50-50 or 90, uh, 90% goes it's, through?
0: It's a little bit of a, it seems to go up a lot the bigger the practice is. Because the bigger the practice is, the more requirement for those staff to come with it because they're not going to be able to integrate a million dollars worth of fees very easily. And But the smaller it is, my larger practice and it's $300,000 worth of fees and they might have two and a half staff members, maybe only one or one and a half come across where basically the bigger the business, more of the staff come across
1: the bigger the buying business or the bigger the acquired business? So the, big, the bigger the, the buyer or the bigger no, the seller? No, no, the
0: bigger the seller. The bigger the seller, more of the staff. Yeah, Because the bigger the seller, the more efficient the business probably is anyway and so more of those staff is required. Yep, yeah, they're going to probably lose reception if reception only does reception unless they need a new admin person and reception person. So sometimes those, I suppose as a purchaser, the first thing to look at is who has client contact? You know, who's dealing with the clients, who speaks to clients and those ones, if they have the right aptitude and attitude, then then of course, they want to be retained. But to, to go back to your sort of examples of the longer employees, you will find some of those staff members are very close to the principal and the principal might have only confided in them out of all the staff members that they're going to go because they kind of know they probably won't get offered employment but sometimes these people are pretty, pretty right. They're like, yeah, that's okay. I was probably gonna go back to a day a week anyway, or I was gonna finish up soon or, you know, or or sometimes these people do have some valuable components to the job so that they do all the audits or they do all the ASIC or they do, they do a section of the business and, and someone might say, hey, you can come across with us, but we're just gonna offer you two days and they might go, great, I've been wanting to go from four days to two days for five years. <laughs> But I think the most important thing is what actually happens is when there is an acquisition, the purchaser, it is the purchaser's opportunity to say, okay, who do we want to take and who don't we want to take? The main thing that can go wrong is a poor transition. So it's really important that the purchaser gives a strong endorsement and good communication of what's happening. Because if you're a purchasing, you just paid all this money for these client relationships and, and the revenue attached, you've got to protect that. So you really need to make sure that there's a clear path and the people that make the mistake, they're already at capacity, but they want to grow. They bought this new practice and they put it on all these clients on top of what their existing clients. And they're not servicing the new clients as well as they were before. So communication of what's happening. Sometimes what can be very important is dual branding so they don't feel like they've just been sold because no one wants to feel like they've been sold. They need to be feeling like there's a good news story that they're now going to be part of something bigger and better, still keep getting the same services, but even more options or better service. However it's positioned, it needs to be an improvement to what they're getting so that they don't just go, hmm, well, now I know that, Rob's gone, I might take this opportunity to go and try John down the road because he's been hassling me to give him a go, you know. So there is going to be some people who will leave because they've been thinking about leaving and this is almost their excuse now that Mm. they realise that The 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 trigger. So it's so important. I see some firms that do this really well. They'll have external functions, little cocktail night, you know, just something very simple in a function room, just a welcome to the firm have some of the staff there so that they feel like they're really being embraced and welcomed into the firm. Some nice dual branded letters, endorsing them, a follow-up phone call just to let you know, we've got your file. We understand what's in it. We look forward to catching up with you. Here's all our numbers. You really have to over communicate in that first six to 12 months to retain these people because they don't have to stay. And just because you've paid for them doesn't mean they're going to stay because they didn't get the money for them or the transaction. It was the principal, it was the accountant that got the money. So the biggest mistake people make is that they're not geared up to be able to do the servicing and the communication and the introduction. And And if people kind of think that they're kind of being dumped or, or they haven't um, felt... Yeah. This is where the transition becomes so important. Both the endorsement, personal introductions, obviously not to every single small tax return that gets done in the practice, but those major clients and I think the principals who do it best are the ones who actually give them that heads up. Look, I've been speaking to I'm talking about clients that might the fees might generate fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year. Give them that heads up. Listen, I'm exploring a couple of other parties to assist in the continuation of the practice. You know, just so people feel, you know what it's like when you get pre-warned. It's a little bit like uh, coming into Christmas that you sort of like to know who might be having lunch and who might be having dinner and what might be happening uh, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. We all like that little bit of pre-warning that something might be happening. So when it does happen, you feel like you were in control of the situation. People don't like to feel like they've been moved around, but if they've been communicated well and welcomed, oh, it's pretty hard to leave. I tell you what, it would work on me if my account never sells his practice, and there's a there's a little intro night and introduced to the staff, and and I get a free beer and and some nibbles. They'll probably have me for life.
1: <laughs> okay, so the most important thing for a sale slash purchase is transition.
0: It yeah, definitely, you just can't over- overestimate because you really what you need to do is put yourself in the client's shoes. I mean, the staff are really important too. It's, it's staff and clients. I mean, any principal who's worth their grain of salt, and most of them will and truly are, they're the salt of the earth, most of these accountants. That's why I love dealing with them, is that they will, and I love it when I hear this, when they start talking about selling their business and and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is something about their clients and the next thing is something about their staff, I know that they're going to have a great outcome and the client's going to have a great outcome of the staff and they'll get a great outcome. Because if they have that focus then you'll probably find they'll attract the right buyer because the buyer will know that's the type of accountant they are and that's how the clients have been treated and and the clients are probably going to be just as loyal as the accountant themselves and ensuring that everyone feels that they've been validated and not just moved it's it's, it makes for a great experience a purchasing practice has just laid out a lot of money right so I think that if they can't put the effort into the transition, you've got to question why they're buying. And and as a broker, while it's not my responsibility, I provide people with a lot of temptates and key communication points and guide them because I actually have got a vested interest in the transaction working for both parties because I'd like the buyer to come back and do it again.
1: Do you talk to both parties through the transition? I do,
0: yeah, I, I I've certainly already been paid and well and truly uh, um, been paid for the work that, that I do because it can, be a, it can be an emotional roller coaster for myself in some respect, right, because sometimes transactions can be on and then off again and then on again, and I really feel for the vendors because it's sometimes a lifetime of work. So you need to make – but I need to really ensure and I want to assist in every way I can to make sure that – after the sale's done that it still works you know and I stay in touch quite regularly with the purchasers and, and and vendors I often call vendors up years later and say oh what are you up to these days and it can be quite interesting I suppose and I suppose that leads to me one of the real important things I think for a vendor or a principal you know who's re- deciding to retire is that he's got something up his sleeve something that that he'd like to spend more time doing because it is a big jump to go from 40, 50, 60 hours a week to all of a sudden doing 15 to all of a sudden or 20 and all of a sudden doing nothing. And I, I found that the the principals that have done this best have, have typically got an outside interest and it could be anything. It can be a new interest. You know, it can be sport. It can be grandchildren. You know, I, I think there is a time –
1: there must be somewhere something else you have to
0: start to think about that and and i I find it's quite interesting actually a lot of my inquiries come between sort of uh, almost uh, mid-february mid-january and and march these accountants right a lot of firms shut down actually physically close the doors from christmas to the second week of january and i think there's a bit of reflection going on yeah do i really want to be back here june 30 next year And the year after, you know, so Mm. it's a great time for me to have discussions about, you know, how long they see themselves doing this. Mm. I think one of the really important things when there's a bit of soul searching going on, because that's actually what goes on in the principal's mind when he's thinking about how long do I keep running this practice for? If you're going into work, and you're enjoying it, and you still got a smile, not every day, no one's smiling every day at work, but at the end of the week, you're still quite satisfied with the work. You shouldn't let that be, I suppose, uh, a reason not to sell because I think it's actually very important that you sell the practice, A, why the practice is performing, the numbers are up, the numbers, or the numbers are being maintained, and you're still enjoying the work because if you're going to go and meet some people to buy your relationships and you've soured to the point of frustration and anger, and hopefully not too many tears, but broadly speaking, quite unhappy, it'll get picked up in a moment. And then what happens is that'll get extrapolated back out by the purchaser that, geez, it must be, you know, what's the client base like? But it just might be that you've just done it long enough, you know? So I think it's important to get out while you're still in a high while you're still enjoying it, while you still got some energy, and so that you can do that handover because many people stay on for years after they sell. Well, if you already can't stand the place, you'll probably find 12 weeks of handover to be difficult. So I do see some principals with a lot of enthusiasm for their practice, and I say to them, this is the perfect time for you to be thinking about retirement. And they're sort of looking at you confused. It's say, because you're still enthused about it, and that'll get picked up by a purchaser. And they're more likely to say, Hey, can you hang around? Because happiness is infectious. And if you're still enjoying the job, it's probably reflective of what it's like to deal with the clients. But if you've got to the point in the business that you're completely unhappy, you're sure, you might have to fake it a bit. But it's pretty hard to fake when you're unhappy in what you're doing, you know. And I'm not saying you've left it too late, but in some respect probably means that you need to accelerate and maybe maybe move on and find something else to um take up your time that that may be a little bit more enjoyable. And just, I find too, a lot of principals once you take that ownership weight off their back, all of a sudden that spring of the step comes back. So one of the advice I can give any principal is the best time to sell is while the practice is still performing, not when it's just lost 20% of its revenue because you lost the the five biggest clients because they're concerned about how much longer you're going to do this for. And certainly the time to sell is while you're still enjoying it age is important, you know, accountants are very lucky because you, you can work into your 70s. You know, you can work into your 80s if you've still still, if you've got the mental capacity. It's hard work, but it's not physical work. And so I think that's what can actually happen is accountants do probably delay and delay the time they sell because they can still do the work. But you don't want to get to the point that you no longer like doing the work because you've been doing it probably maybe a bit too long. So I can help people through any stage of their journey of selling, I found the people most successful and had the best outcomes are probably the ones that are still actually enjoying what they're doing.
1: Welcome back. After the interview, Matthew told me that in the past, he used to get one engagement out of 20 contacts. This has now changed to 1 out of 5, out of 5 practitioners contacting Matthew about a possible sale of their practice, 1 goes straight to market. And in the past, the average between first contact and sale was about 18 months. And this is also getting much shorter, according to Matthew, meaning accounting practices are selling faster now, within well under a year. So it seems... That the market is finally turning from a seller's market to a more balanced position. In the next episode, episode 220, Andrew Henschel will talk about how Airbnb rentals affect the CGT main residence exemption. What happens to your main residence exemption when you put your house on Airbnb or Booking.com or another sharing platform? Different topic. If you go to the national conference of the SMSF Association next week, I hope you have a great time, you learn a lot and have light bulb moments. I'm really excited about it. There are so many sessions I want to attend. I've never been before. So I feel like a kid in the candy store. But I digress. I need to let you go back to work. So thank you for listening and thank you to CLASS for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.